Welcome to Sunday Sermons from Trinity UMC in Lincoln, a podcast to help on the faith journey. Now on to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Slater. Well, good morning. You all hear the rain on the roof? <laughs> all of you online, do you hear the rain on your roofs, depending on where you are? We have some that tune in from uh, uh, around the country and around the world. But No, I heard a song... Oh gosh, it didn't catch on, but it was, it was Amazing Grace with a new chorus that was written, but it was Grace Like Rain. And I loved that ever since I heard it because it made me think about how rain falls down from the sky and it finds every little crack, it finds every little crevice, it finds every little dirty spot, and the rain manages to find its way. It seeps into the ground, into the cracks and crevices we can't even see. Uh, And that's like God's grace, isn't it? it? It seeps into all the cracks and then it even forms streams and tributaries and rivers as God's grace runs through the world. I love that metaphor. So, Just think of that when you hear the rain. (laughs) Well, I'm Jeff Slater. I am the lead pastor here at Trinity, and it's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, And I especially want to thank all of our musicians this morning. I suppose this is God and me more than anything else. But uh, first service, we had all sorts of problems. We started the live stream, uh, and uh, we encountered one of those errors that you don't see until you go live, so you can't possibly know about it until five minutes before worship, (laughs) and I spent the first 10, 15 minutes of the service trying to troubleshoot and get it to work, so I didn't get to sing the opening worship songs. (laughs) Then, second service, I'm sitting here, and I swear, if you ever want the best seat of the house, go to the front row to where you hear the congregation behind you and the choir in front of you, and you, you just, it's a wonderful place to sing, and it's good to worship together. So thanks to all of you and all of you, too. Come sit in the front row sometime. Believe me, it's worth it. (laughs) Would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh God, thank you for all the ways you give us to worship and to draw close to you. Help us to seek out those streams and those tributaries where your grace not only uh, falls down and fills the crevices, but that flows in such a way that we get washed away in it. Help us to know in these moments that you are God. Amen. Well, today we're continuing a series called, When Jesus Spoke to Crowds, What Did He Say? Uh, And what it really is, is a read through the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And uh, the the, the premise behind it is that, well, we don't actually know what Jesus said when he taught. You know, there weren't cameras filming it. Nobody had a tape recorder in the first century or a phone with a voice note on it. Uh, There was nobody there that was even able to, to write it down fast enough. And so instead, what happened was the Gospel writers like Matthew went around and collected the stories. You know, what did you hear when he was in your town? What did did he say when he spoke to the group you were in? And uh, Matthew in uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 recreates that experience from those memories of what Jesus said when he spoke. And uh, as Christians, we see so much, and rightfully so, in what Jesus did and in his death and resurrection. Um, But even even those who aren't Christians say that Jesus was a good teacher uh, and a good moral 
teacher and a good human teacher. Uh, But so often us Christians uh, speak so much about the resurrection, and again, rightfully so, that we forget to read what Jesus taught about how to live. And so that's what we're doing in this series. Now, last week we started it, and Jesus started out with the why. Uh, There's a section right at the beginning of his sermon when he first goes up on the hill uh, to to begin talking to the crowd uh, called the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are they who blank, blessed are the blank, blessed are the... And he goes through this, and, and you realize that he's turning upside down the values of the world. Uh, he essentially says that those who find their identity and their security in the things of this world are not the fortunate ones. You know, those who find security in their bank account are not as secure as they think. Those who find their identity in their, in their job, in, in, in their hobbies, in the things of this world, not that those are bad things, but if that's your only identity, you're missing out. Because the truly fortunate ones are the ones who find their identity in God the ones who show mercy, the ones who are peacemakers, the ones who are pure in heart. So Jesus starts out with this beautiful why, this picture of God's kingdom. Uh, And we know that that will be all of us one day. That will be all of the world one day. But fortunate are the ones who live it now. Fortunate are the ones who live God's reality now. So that leads to the obvious question, how do we get there? How do we do it? Now it's time to buckle up because that's what the rest of of Jesus' sermon and the rest of this series is about. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about religion. This week, we're not even going to get to religion. This week, we're just going to talk about morality and morals. You You know what I mean by morality, right? How to do the right thing, how to live in a way that is good and honoring of who we are, making the right choices. Now, Jesus begins this section by talking about the law. In the early, in, when Jesus was walking around teaching, when he was speaking to crowds, most of those he encountered were Jews. And so oftentimes he spoke from that perspective, knowing his audience. Matthew, the gospel writer, was also writing first and foremost to a Jewish audience. And so it makes sense that the first thing uh, he would uh, record of the collections of what Jesus said would be about the law. Now, by law, he means the law that God gave to Moses. Maybe you remember the story. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. They had not governed themselves in a very long time, and they didn't know how. So as they left slavery in Egypt, uh, Moses goes up the mountain uh, and from God himself receives the law, a set of rules, a structure for society, one that is, well, one of the basics of just being a society, right, of caring for and living with one another fairly, but in this case, ones that were formed uh, to honor the heart of God and the heart of who God made us to be. Excuse me. Uh, However, in the first century, in Jesus' day, uh, so many people had doubled down on the law of Moses that they were taking it to an extreme. They were following it not just literally, but 
super literally. Now, I don't know if that totally makes sense. You know, if you want to study these things, you can. But they were so serious about the letter of the law that they had forgotten why it was even there. They'd lost the heart of it. They'd lost the why of it. Now, later, now this isn't everyone, but a lot of people. Later, Jesus would ask which law was the most important. Jesus would be asked that. And his answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second most important is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if your interpretation of what God means by a certain law doesn't love God and love neighbor first, then you have some more thinking to do. You have some more praying to do, some more searching to know what that law is really about. Now, clearly, some in the crowd were trapped by legalism and wanted Jesus to free them from how strict things were. There were others in the crowd, undoubtedly, who were worried that Jesus was there to challenge the law and perhaps even to do away with it completely. And so Jesus begins by, I don't know, setting them at ease, maybe quite the opposite. He says, don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. But what does the law really mean? It turns out that the spirit of it is even more intense and personal than a literal interpretation. (laughs) I'll show you what I mean. Uh, Jesus goes through a few examples. Here's the first one. You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. Now, that's a quote of one of the laws, by the way, and also one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, You have heard it said, uh, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in in danger of judgment. So in other words, not just those who commit murder, but even those who have anger in their hearts are in danger. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. If they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Now, I especially want to say a thing here, because when we hear the phrase fiery hell, we usually think of this medieval idea of eternal punishment. Uh, and I don't know, this may challenge some of you, but I, that is something that I question my own self. And, and particularly in this context, the Greek word that's used here is Gehenna. And Gehenna is a proper noun. It's a place, not a thing. A Gehenna was a garbage dump that was out on the edge of town, uh, and it was an especially well-known and large garbage dump. It was almost a symbol, uh, and in fact, it was usually smoldering. There's where the fiery part comes from in this translation. Uh, uh, you know, they would burn the trash, and usually there would still be embers there as more trash was put on it, and then burn it down again. You get the idea, right? What Jesus is saying here is that if you have anger in your heart, then you're in danger of being thrown into the trash pit. You might, you've been taking your life, you've been taking your chance at happiness, and you've been throwing it into Gehenna. That's what I believe is really what Jesus is saying here in that part. Uh, and, and that kind of, that, that kind of burns, <laughs> doesn't it? You get what I'm saying? It, it, it does. It, it shows you what you're putting yourself through now to be living with anger. Now, I do think Jesus' point, uh, point is, is uh, uh, first of all, that this is important. You know, we might think of anger as a small thing compared to murder, and it is, I suppose. 
but that even anger matters. God is a God of grace, but that doesn't mean that you should go around harboring that kind of anger and fear in your heart just because you know God will forgive you. Now, he goes on to say, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. You know, this is kind of a, uh, a continuing of the same idea. Uh, that we shouldn't even come to church unless we've reconciled with those who, with whom we have an argument. And if we have a gift to give to God and the world, that's a good thing. But we should first make sure that we have things straight with our brother and our sister. You know, in the, uh, uh, what we do at our church uh, at the start of the service, the welcome time, when Michael says, go and find somebody that you don't know and introduce yourself and we welcome one another, that is a way, uh, I think it's a beautiful tradition that a lot of Methodists have of taking our sense of welcoming one another, our sense of openness to one another, and bringing it into our worship service. It's a way of taking our friendships and our fellowships and making it part of our worship service. But maybe some of you have been to other traditions, uh, and in particular, Lutherans and Catholics and Episcopalians and some Presbyterians too, uh, have a tradition called passing of the peace, where you say a prayer of forgiveness, and then at the end of the prayer of forgiveness, you turn to those that are around you and say, may the peace of Christ be with you. And where that comes from is this passage and a few others too. It's about forgiving your brother and sister, making sure that you've reconciled any differences that you have so that you can then come to the altar with a clear conscience. You know, a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a Lutheran friend, and I mean a Lutheran friend in Minnesota, so you know, that's, that's about as serious as it gets for a Lutheran. <laughs> and uh, he uh, told the story of a time he was in a big argument with a good friend of his. I mean, they were, they were ripping mad at one another. <laughs> and uh, uh, Sunday came along, and they were in church, and the time came for confession and then passing of the peace. And as they turned to say, you know, it's like they'll have it, you know, peace of Christ be with with you. As they turned to one another, they locked eyes, and all of a sudden it occurred to them that they had let this argument come before their friendship and come before even their worship. And they shook hands and said, may the peace of Christ be with you. And they both knew without having to say any words other than that, that this and that the friendship that they had was more important than their argument. And they could work that out. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, don't commit murder is obviously an important law. But most of us, hopefully none of us, will ever come up against don't commit murder. But Jesus says that it goes deeper than that because the violence we do with our words, the violence we do with our attitudes, they matter too. <laughs> I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Jesus says. I think it might actually be harder. <laughs> so he goes on with something very similar, but on a different topic. He says, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully, and by the way, I think you can flip those genders too, uh, has already committed sin in his heart. Well, it's basically the same idea, right? It's not just about actually doing the thing. It's also about, uh, it's also about what's in your heart. It's about your attitudes and your intentions. 
And to, to stress how serious this is, he says, and if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose a part of your body than, than that your whole body should be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. <laughs> Pretty harsh words, aren't they? But we also know they're true. Now, it was common in those days for, uh, for teachers and rabbis like Jesus to exaggerate a little bit to make a point. And I really don't think uh, Jesus wants any of us to gouge out our eyes. There is forgiveness before it comes to that point. But he does make his point, doesn't it? You know, the type of things that can infect our heart and infect our lives. They're serious enough that even losing a limb would be better than losing our heart to them. So he goes on and he talks about divorce. Now, I'll read the passage here, but I want to talk about this a little more because this is something that I think a lot of people in our world today need a better uh, understanding of, and I'll tell you my story too. Jesus says this, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. Now, that's a quote of the, uh, the, uh, the old law of Moses. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When I was a teenager, I spent some time around a conservative church. And now I was a teenager at the time, uh, and, and I've always been a curious person, <laughs> but uh, at that point I hadn't studied the Bible deeply yet. And uh, there was a couple in the church uh, whom I knew, uh, the woman was, uh, I believe both of them were in the choir, if memory serves, uh, and my parents were both doing music at the church, and they got divorced, and the church made it clear that they were no longer welcome because they got divorced. Now, I knew in my heart, I knew in my gut that that was not right for the church to no longer welcome them. I knew that, there was a, that, that, that that was wrong. But it was also the first time in my life that I ever read the Bible closely. And I remember coming across this passage knowing that it was wrong for the church to not welcome someone who's been divorced, but also seeing that passage right there and, and not knowing how to reconcile the two, not knowing what was going on. And I think there are others of us that struggle with that. And of course, divorce is a lot more common in our society than it was a generation or two ago. So... Let me tell you what I've learned, not that I'm necessarily right here, but let me share with you what I've learned. There's a couple things that need to be said, really. One is that gender and marriage were very different in the first century in Jesus's time. Women couldn't work, so being divorced meant that she would either have to go back to her birth family, and not every birth family would accept the wife back, but, and if they didn't accept her, she was essentially a beggar from that point on. That's what divorce meant. There was no alimony. There were no uh, social safety nets. There was none of that. So Jesus, yes, Jesus is talking about ending marriage, ending a relationship. But in those days, it wasn't just about breaking a vow and a commitment. It was also about the man having all the power to put the woman out on the street with no recourse from the woman. 
So that's one thing we have to take into mind that Jesus is saying, that part of his strong words here are about that. Many have asked, though, if divorce today is a sin. Now, I can't speak for Jesus, of course, and I am most grateful that I ha- and most fortunate that I have not experienced this personally. Uh, and I hope those who have experienced divorce will forgive me for speaking of what I don't really know. But my answer as a pastor is, is, is divorce today a sin? My answer as a pastor would be, yes, but. <laughs> yes, but. Divorce is a sin because it's still the breaking of a promise. It's still the breaking of a commitment that was made between two people and a commitment that was made before God. Now, I don't think anybody who has experienced divorce would say that there is not sin there, that there is not something there that is not the way things were supposed to be. I also think divorce demands forgiveness and reconciliation, not only of the couple, but of many, depending on the circumstance, both for the good of others, but also to let go of the weight that you carry. So yes, divorce is a sin, but sometimes relationships become so damaged that the harm caused by stain is the greater sin. Now, my wife and I have, have talked about this, and it, it hurts our hearts even to think about it. And we're fortunate that we're in a very good place in our marriage. Uh, my heart truly goes out to anybody who's faced with such a terrible choice. And I would remind you that God's grace, forgiveness, and healing is far bigger even than a life-consuming problem. And if any of you are faith, there's anybody listening today who's facing such a decision, I hope you know that God will bring healing, whatever that looks like, though the journey will likely not be easy. I am praying for you by name, if you like. And for those who are happily married, I'll add that I think this teaching of Jesus has something to say to you too, and that is work on a a strong foundation even in the good days. All right, so... I don't think that's talked about enough in the church and from the pulpit, and so I wanted to talk about it this morning. Jesus goes on, though, and he talks about pledges. Again, you have heard it said uh, from those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge. You know, we're talking like uh, swearing on the the grave of your father or something like that, right? You've heard it said uh, from those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you've pledged to the Lord. Jesus adds... But I say to you, you must not make a pledge at all. He sums it up at the end by saying, let your yes mean yes and let your no mean no. You should be a person of such high moral character, of such great character, that nobody questions when you say you're going to do something. If you have to make a pledge, you've missed the point. (laughs) Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. He he talks about retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a quote of the old law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus says, that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. This is one law that he does update for a new era. He says, if people slap you on the right cheek, you must turn your left cheek to them as well. 
Now, there are some who have used this passage as a way to justify staying in an abusive situation. I really believe that is not what Jesus meant. What he does mean, though, is that revenge is never the right answer, that retaliation is not the right answer. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If somebody hurts your eye, if your reaction is to hurt their eye back, to knock their tooth out because they knocked yours out, then there is something in your heart that is less than reflecting the love of God and neighbor. If God took revenge on us for all of our missteps, where would we be? Instead of retaliating, lean in. Get to know the person who hurt you. Consider what might have led them to take the action that they did. And consider how you might show grace to them just like God has showed grace to you. But then comes the most difficult of Jesus' moral teachings. We've been building to it. Are you ready for this? You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbor is a quote of scripture. Hate your enemy is something that kind of came along uh, by assumption. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Don't even the worst people in the world love those who love them? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. You know, this is that upside-down reality of living in God's kingdom. It's easy to hate your enemy but it's hard to love them. We could do a whole sermon series just on that one bit, could we not? Instead, we're called to remember that even the people hardest to love are also children of God. The Taliban are God's children. The Nazis were God's children. The January 6 insurrectionists are God's children. The person who hurt you at work is a child of God. The family member who's a thorn in your side, God loves. The parent who let you down is also a child of God. The damage caused by all the people I just listed and so many others, the damage caused is real and it's not okay, the damage that they called. But Jesus calls us not to retaliation and hate, but to reconciliation and love. The anger we feel in our hearts is natural and it's understandable. Remember, Jesus says, don't just not murder, but watch the anger in your heart. There is some anger that's even justified by the injustice and the evil in this world. But Jesus calls us to let go of it, to be free of it. And it's not easy. We must work at it. We have to police our thoughts. We have to pray for God's love to come in. We have to avoid situations where we might fall. That's right. It's better to chop off your hand, right? We have to avoid situations where we might fall. We have to strive to be a better person ourselves than that which is far too common in the world. 
But the heart of Jesus' moral teaching is that every person is a beloved child of God. And if God loves them despite their shortcomings, God loves us despite ours. And we should love one another too. So I want to ask, Jesus didn't let his first hearers in those crowds off the hook. And I don't think he lets you and me off the hook either. So I want to ask, what is it that you need to work on? What is it from today's scripture that challenges you? Does anger often loom outside of your mind? Do you struggle with sexual sin or faithfulness? What's behind it? Do you make promises you can't keep? Now, that's not only promises to other people. It might be promises to yourself that you don't keep, too. Is your first instinct to lash out at those who hurt you or those you love? Do you struggle to see the person, the child of God, inside those who vex you? My challenge to you this week, Jesus' challenge to you every week, is to consider it. To sit with Jesus' teaching about being the person, living as the person God made you to be. And to ask Jesus where you fall short. Now, here's the word of grace and hope. God's grace does fall down like rain. God's grace rains down from the sky and it fills the cracks. It fills the crevices with life. It seeps its way into the hidden little corners that nothing else can even get to, but God's grace does. It goes into the dark corners of our life that we're not even fully aware of. And God's grace makes it whole. God sees you and your shortcoming. God wants reconciliation and love and grace. God wants his reign to fall down, not only on you, but on all people. And he wants the kingdom of God to live in you. He wants you to be a stream. He wants to be you to be a place where that grace gathers and flows into the world as only grace like rain can. Jesus not only forgives, but he makes you a conduit of that grace for the world. That's the word of hope. And that's why we live like Jesus made us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? You know, maybe there was something in these moral ideas that really hit you. Or maybe there's something else in your life, not named in that passage specifically, but something that keeps coming back to your mind that you know isn't right. Maybe God is drawing your attention to something that you know can be better. I invite you to have the courage to admit it before God, to name it before God, and to make room for God's grace to reign in. Oh God, we stand before you today knowing that you see us. You see us not with eyes of retaliation, but that you see us with eyes of love. Oh God, we humbly ask for your forgiveness this day for the ways we've fallen short.
We ask for your help to reconcile with others and with ourselves. And we ask that you would give us courage to live better the life for which Jesus made us and which Jesus offers us. Oh God, help us to be whole and help us to flow into the world. We pray it in the name of Jesus who taught us. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's Sunday Sermon. For more information on growth groups or how to more fully embrace the life of faith, visit us at www.trinitylincoln.org.